So we are still in Romans, and last week we finished Romans 14, which brings us to Romans 15. Sort of back up for just a couple of seconds. Paul's entire letter has dealt with division within the body. You've got Jews that look down on these new Christians, and you've got Christians that look down on the Jews. And what Paul has been doing is saying to each group, you guys need to settle down and come together as a body. Last time, what he was talking about is there are some of you who don't have a problem eating food sacrificed to idols because you don't think an idol is anything special anyway, and the fact that some pagan priest thinks that that is a special deal doesn't affect you because you believe in Christ. Others of you wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because, among other things, the Torah says don't. So does, by the way, the Council of Jerusalem. So there Paul is saying, all right, folks, if you are one of those who doesn't have a problem eating food sacrificed to idols, and by the way, that is probably not going to a temple and eating of the sacrifice as part of a religious ritual, but going into the meat market because the meat that gets sacrificed shows up in the butcher shop. And I would expect that an enterprising butcher who is wanting to sell his beef or whatever it is would say, ha ha, this was just sacrificed this morning. In other words, not only is it fresh, but it's the best of the best because it was involved in a sacrifice. And elsewhere, Paul says, under those circumstances, you're not required to inquire where the meat came from. If somebody says it was sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. But if you don't know, you don't have to check. Don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. So. What's apparently happening here in Rome is you have probably mostly former Gentiles that, you know, I've been buying meat from this butcher for as long as I've been alive. He's got good meat. So what if it was sacrificed to an idol? And then you've got Jews who, as I say, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. That is one possible scenario. The problem is we don't know exactly what he's saying because it isn't clear in this letter. But as I say, he has talked about the subject in other letters, so I'm inferring. So anyway, what he's saying is, if you are one of those folks that doesn't have any problem eating otherwise good meat without checking on its provenance, don't lead your brother who thinks it's a sin into sinning. Anybody ever been to a Baptist picnic ever since you were in the Messianic movement? And they look at you real strange and say, why won't you eat the ham salad? What are you, some kind of a legalist? Don't you know that Christ made all foods clean? Social pressure is what it amounts to. The comment was at funeral service, when you have hors d'oeuvres or a meal afterwards, after the funeral, if it's a Sunday Christian service, You'll have ham salad and you'll have just, you know, ham sandwiches, also shrimp, all sorts of stuff that you can't eat. Food is a big deal, always has been. So what Paul is saying here is, guys, don't lead your brother 
who thinks that food sacrificed to idols is impure and he will not eat it, don't put social pressure on him and lead him to violate his conscience. That's sort of the gist of chapter 14. So now we're coming into 15. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I once read a commentary by a guy named N.T. Wright, Anglican, bright guy. And his question was always, who are the strong and who are the weak? And it isn't clear. And it isn't clear, by the way, that Paul himself would eat meat sacrificed to an idol. So we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. In other words, don't cause strife within the body just because you happen to believe that ham sandwiches on Easter Sunday are okay. No, you don't do that. You don't cause dissension within the body just because you think it's okay and you're sort of making a point and pleasing yourself. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor or his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And that's a quote from, from Psalm 69, verse 9. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Let me stop here for just a minute and back up. One of the things that Paul is teaching here is Torah 101, because you've all been through the Torah many, many, many times, and one of the things that is obvious is it is not enough to refrain from injuring your neighbor. You have an obligation to actually do him good if you can. So for Paul to say in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, that's Torah. What you want to do is you want to do affirmative good for your neighbor. Ralph, years and years and years and years ago, gave this example. Somebody wants to sell a parcel of land, and it's right next to somebody else who might be interested in buying it. And if you sell that parcel of land to your neighbor, what you do is you greatly increase the value of your neighbor's land because he has got a much larger parcel and it's contiguous. So selling it to your neighbor at market value, I mean, you don't have to take a big discount or anything like that, but what you do have to do is go to your neighbor first and say, okay, I'm selling this piece of land and this is what it's worth. I'm giving you first right of refusal because if you decide you want to buy it, what's going to happen is your piece of land will increase in value more than the price of the added parcel. So if you have an acre and he's got two acres, three contiguous acres is worth more than one acre and two acres. So what you're doing is you're doing your neighbor good, affirmatively. And so Paul is talking about that kind of thing, I believe. So verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. In other words, he took their reproach. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Messiah Yeshua, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Therefore, welcome one another as Messiah has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is a continuation of his plea for unity and his plea for living together as brothers. So now down to verse 8, and we're going to talk about Gentiles. I'm going to read verse 8 through 13, and then I'm going to talk about it. And by the way, he's got a number of quotes from various parts of Scripture. So verse 8, For I tell you that Messiah became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Ishai will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's two points being made. Point number one is that Messiah came in accordance with the scriptures and everything he did is a verification of the promises that were made to God and the Jews should understand that. That's verse 8. So what he's saying is Messiah became a servant to the circumcised, the Hebrews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So the reason he came to the Hebrews is to demonstrate God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. That's thing one. Thing two, then, is, oh, by the way, he's also going to bring the Gentiles in. Now, I want to start in a number of places. Probably the easiest place to start is in Exodus 12, starting in verse 43. This is the law of the Passover. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So clear back at the Exodus, God is anticipating that Gentiles are going to come in, and he is also explicitly stating that there's only one law. There's one Torah. 
There isn't a special law for the Gentiles. There isn't a special law for the Jews. It's all one law, and everybody has the same law, and the same rules apply to everybody. The only thing that a Gentile cannot do in Israel is eat the Passover without being circumcised. Furthermore, it doesn't say here that this guy is going to become an Israelite. He's a stranger. He's a foreigner. And strangers and foreigners are God's poster children for people that Israel cannot oppress. One of the things that he says when they come out of Egypt is, all right, now you guys know what it's like to be an oppressed foreigner. Don't do it to anybody else under any circumstances. So what God is saying here is, if a foreigner wants to dwell among you, and if he's willing to circumcise all of his males, then he gets to eat the Passover. And oh, by the way, all of the laws that apply to you apply to him. Next place let's go is Ephesians 3. And you've all been through this, but I will remind you of it quickly. I'm going to pick it up with 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Yeshua, on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardships of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. You can also then chase this down to 1 Corinthians 2, I believe, where Paul says that if the powers and principalities had understood what was going to happen, they never would have crucified him. In other words, they can't do anything about the fact that the Hebrews are God's people, but what they really wanted to do is prevent everybody else from becoming God's people. And what Yeshua's sacrifice accomplished is the Gentiles are now able to come in. And that was a mystery. So now, back to Romans. And what Paul is saying here is he's reminding the Jews in his audience that Gentiles coming in goes clear back to the Torah. There's nothing weird here with Gentiles coming in. God has been saying over and over and over again through the Torah, through the Psalms, through the prophets, that Gentiles are going to come in. That's going to happen. What you are witnesses of is that the event is now happening. That was a mystery. And it was unknown until the crucifixion of Messiah just exactly how that was going to work and when they were going to come in. That's the point of the Ephesians passage. The point of the Ephesians passage is not that God did something new and unexpected by bringing the Gentiles in. That's not new and unexpected. That goes back to Torah. The thing that was unknown was the timing and the mechanism. And the timing and the mechanism was a function of the sacrifice of Yeshua. That was the mystery. The mystery wasn't that the Gentiles were going to come in. I just said, it goes clear back to Torah and the prophets. Nothing strange there. Furthermore, for our Sunday brethren who may hear this, the Torah says there's only one law. And it's the same law for the Jew 
It's the same law for the Greek. It's the same law for everybody. There isn't any special law that Yeshua put into force that the Gentiles now get to eat ham sandwiches. And that, as I say, goes back to Moses. So, going back to Romans 15 now. And we're down all the way to verse 14. And this is where Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles. And we've been through this before. Peter and Paul. Paul had the Gentile franchise. Peter had the Hebrew franchise. And so Peter's letter are to people who understand Torah. Paul's letters are to people who don't understand nothing about Torah. And he's got to sort of teach them from ground zero. Two different audiences. So Paul now, in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, (laughs) because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Yeshua to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now that needs to be unpacked also. First off, he's obviously buttering them up. He's just written 14 chapters where he has taken both sides of the controversy to task. He's explained to the Jews, yeah, Gentiles are coming in and that's okay. He's explaining to the Gentiles, hey, knock it off. You're not anything special, and the fact that God broke some of the Jews off to graft you in, he can do the same to you. So he's been sort of slapping both of them around. Slapping them around is probably too harsh, although chapter 1 was pretty slappy around. But now he's sort of schmoozing them a little bit, saying that they all know this. However, there's this little phrase. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What on earth does that mean? you got to go to Leviticus, and you got to go to Leviticus 10. This is after the death of Nadab and Avihu. Remember the two sons of Aaron who got all excited and tried to run into the tabernacle and got turned into crispy critters. So Leviticus 10.8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, 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 the high priest, Aaron, father of two dead boys, but also the father of the priestly line. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Okay, clear enough. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The duty of a priest is to teach the words of Moses, the statutes of God as written down by Moses, Torah, to Israel. So Paul is saying back in Romans, okay, The function of a priest is to teach Torah to Israel. I'm the minister to the Gentiles. So what I'm doing is I am taking on a priestly function, which is teaching Torah, but I'm doing it to the Gentiles who are not part of the Levitical franchise. He's not saying he's a priest. 
What he's saying is he is taking on a priestly function, which is to teach Moses. The Levitical priest has the franchise of teaching Moses to the Hebrews. There isn't anybody that's got the job of teaching Moses to the Gentiles. So I am taking on that priestly function, and I am going to teach Moses to the Gentiles. Comment was, but wait a minute, once they come in, they're part of Israel. Not necessarily, because one of the things that we see in Revelation at the end is after the lake of fire, the new heaven and the new earth, you're still going to have Israel separate from the nations. Israel is God's chosen people. They've been chosen. They have been picked out. They will continue to have special designation and you're going to have nations in the new heaven and the new earth that in the Baptist sense are saved. They make it past the lake of fire, the new heaven and the new earth, but they are not Israel. They are still the nations. What Paul is saying is Israel's still Israel. It is certainly possible for a Gentile to join Israel. There's a process, proselytes and so forth, and that involves circumcision at the end of the day. A lot of you Gentiles are not going to want to go through that. But understand in the kingdom of God, as we just talked about when I was mentioning Exodus, there is only one Torah. And it's the same Torah for the Jew, the Hebrew, and the Gentile. So once God is ruling the whole place, either by the hand of Messiah or after the new heaven and the new earth, once God is ruling, the statutes are going to be Torah. You need to understand Torah if you're going to be members of the kingdom of God. So Paul is saying the sons of Aaron have the franchise of teaching Torah to Hebrews. I am doing a similar function, a priestly function, in that I am going to teach Torah to Gentiles. But it's the same Torah for Jew and Gentile. There's no difference. So Paul is not a Levite, he's not a priest, and he's not claiming to be a priest. What he's doing is he is taking on a priestly function, which is teaching Torah. And since he's the only one that's got it, and he's an apostle, and he's got the Gentile franchise, the job falls to him. He has to teach Torah to you Gentiles. Now, once Paul is dead, we don't know who Paul's children were. What we do know is we have what's called apostolic succession, where generations of men of God have laid hands on their disciples, if you will, and anointed them to minister and teach, should be teaching Torah to their flocks. Actually, let me take a lateral arabesque here. You've all heard this riff before, so I'll do it quickly. There are three orders of priesthood. There are three venues of sacrifice, and there are three different tables of sacrifice, just as there are three members of the Godhead. So in the Tanakh, the sons of Aaron are the priests designated by God, and their venue is the tabernacle or the temple, and their table of sacrifice is for unintentional sin. Yeshua is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as far as we know, he's the only one. 
He is not a priest according to the order of Levi. The book of Hebrews makes very clear he's not authorized to sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle. He is authorized to sacrifice in the tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy, and the sacrifice that he brings is his own blood. And that's the only sacrifice that exists for willful sin. And it doesn't, by the way, negate the sacrificial office of the Levites. It's, it's completely dead. They're orthogonal to each other. They don't interfere. The third order of priesthood is the priesthood of all believers, which is us. And we are not according to the order of Aaron. We are not according to the order of Melchizedek. We are of yet a different order. And the sacrifice we're authorized to bring is the sacrifice of praise. So in a sense, you could say that as a believer, having been baptized and having been brought into the kingdom of God, you could say, okay, a priestly function is to teach Torah. And you would then, I think, be well within your lane to say, I'm teaching Torah as a priestly function of a different order than Levi. The comment was that there are sects of Christianity, one of which might be the Catholic Church, who have said that they are successors of Peter, which they very well may be, and they are the only ones authorized to teach Scripture, and laymen are not. That's not how I read Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. Catholic priests are authorized to teach Scripture. I'm not saying that they're not authorized. I'm simply saying that they are not unique. And by the way, the offering in verse 16 to be a minister of Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, that can mean a couple of things. Thing one that it can mean is Gentiles offering a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, which was something that regularly happened. So, for example... One of the things that caused the Romans to believe the Jews were going into rebellion is the Romans sent a sacrifice to be offered on their behalf and a rebel marred the sacrifice in a way that the priest would notice that it was unacceptable but the Romans wouldn't have any idea what was going on. I think it cut its lip or something like that. So when the sacrifice showed up, the priest said, Sorry, no can do. This is blemished. The Romans took that as evidence that the Jews were about to go into rebellion, and that started the Roman War, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. So the idea of Gentiles coming in and offering sacrifices in the temple was well established. There's never been any problem about that. So that could be one meaning of it, where it says that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. It could also mean the offering of praise that the Gentiles raise up in their function as priests according to the third order of priesthood. It could mean that. I just don't know which it means. Either one of those is certainly possible. Verse 17. In Messiah Yeshua, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Obedience to what? Obedience to Torah. 
by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And that's a quote from Isaiah. So Paul is getting ready to wind things up here. That's sort of the end of the theological part of this. We'll go ahead and read down through the rest of the letter just because Paul wrote it and it's in the Bible. I don't have anything particular to say about most of the rest of this. So down to verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Messiah. So a couple of things. Obviously, when he goes to Jerusalem, what he's doing is there's a prophecy of a famine that's coming to Israel. So what Paul has been doing is he has been raising food, grain mostly, I'm sure, among the churches in Achaia and uh, Macedonia for the relief of the famine that is expected. So what he's doing on this trip is he is sailing with that load of food to go to Jerusalem and deliver it to the church in Jerusalem for the relief of the famine that's expected. And of course we know from the book of Acts that that's when he gets arrested and taken into Roman custody and he in fact does go to Rome but not the way he expected to go to Rome. In other words, he never does get to Spain as far as I know. Or at least the scripture doesn't say anything about it. So that's what he's talking about there when he's talking about his travels and so forth. So I'm now down to verse 1530. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Messiah Yeshua and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me and your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy to be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He certainly is sort of expecting trouble when he gets to Jerusalem, and of course he's going to find it. Paul was good at finding trouble wherever he went. He was kind of a troublemaker. Down to chapter 16 now. And this is Basically, personal greetings to all and sundry. Mostly, I don't have any idea who these folks are or were. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Priscilla and Aquila, 
my fellow workers in Christ Yeshua, who risked their neck for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they are in Messiah before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Yeshua, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua Messiah be with you. One of the things about churches is churches represent a group of people. And a group of people represents the opportunity for power. So anytime you have a crowd that is gathered, whether it's a congregation or whatever, you will find people who will come into that and try and co-opt the gathering for their own purposes. And so Paul is warning against that kind of thing. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua Messiah, according to that revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Yeshua Messiah. Amen. We're back to the mystery that we talked about in Ephesians 3. The idea that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs. We are at Tadah on Romans. As we finished Romans, the most difficult book in all of Scripture, and I don't think so. I think that if you read Romans through the lens of Torah, through the lens of the three orders of priesthood, I think it's very clear. I don't find it difficult at all.
Now, some of Paul's sentences are difficult, and it takes a while to unpack those suckers. I was listening to Ron Dart the other day, who I like very much. I'm sorry he's dead, but one of the things he says is, it is probably the case that Paul is pacing up and down dictating this. So what you're getting is somebody giving an impromptu sermon and somebody trying to copy it down as he goes. And the thing about it, of course, is it's not like our word processes where you say, oh, no, I don't want that there. I want to move that here. None of that's possible. Once it's written down on the parchment of the papyrus, it's there. And you just have to move on. So that's probably a lot of what Paul is doing is he's preaching as opposed to sitting down and composing a letter. I find Paul's grammar sometimes distracting. But again, you know, like when we were going back about eating. Well, if you've read some of Paul's other discourses and you know the Torah's rules on what food is, then you can make pretty good sense out of it without too much trouble. And you know, it's all sort of like that. Et ta